0: Good to see you all. Good morning. Thanks for being here today. It's a great day. I'm glad to be with you. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. Blessed to be looking at Romans chapter 8. Isn't that the best chapter? Some call it the greatest chapter in the Bible, and we can see why, because it is such an encouraging chapter for us. We started Romans 8. With there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ, we close the chapter with the words, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And in the middle of it, we read all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. So wow, awesome things. All these three promises should really direct the way we choose to do our lives. Each day is a new day to become more like Jesus. This is called our sanctification. We do this by living in the Spirit, living as conquerors, and living to prepare ourselves for the glory that is before us. So today we're going to talk about how to do life, which sounds a little broad, but it really isn't. There's just two ways to do life. One way is to... um, do life all about me, my plans, my purposes. The other way to do life is all about my relationship with God and his plans and his purposes for my life. You know, Ted and I, my husband, we were in a donut shop recently. You have to have a donut every now and then. And this little young family came in and they had a real young toddler with them. I don't know if he could talk yet because he only said one word. He knew that word very well, me. (laughs) So he figures out as they're opening up the door, I am in a donut shop. Me, me, me. He says that they walk, they get to the display counter. Me, me, me. They get his donuts, he's going to his table, me, 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 and I thought that is what every little toddler would want to say when they're staring at a bunch of donuts, and the truth is, every adult in there was thinking the same thing. (laughs) We just won't say it out loud. So donuts are one thing, but putting me, me, me at the forefront of our lives, and how we choose to do life, is a mistake. Living for our plans and what we want has consequences because when we are focusing and living for ourselves, we will never be fulfilled and we will never live out our real life's purposes. We didn't create ourselves, so we can't really tell ourselves why we were created. Right? Rick Warren has a book called The Purpose Driven Life. You may have read that. And this is what he says, I believe, on the first page. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why, You were placed on this planet, you must begin with God because you were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Life with God. On the top of your outline is a verse that sums that up pretty well. In him, we live and move and have our being. And when we do life with God, God is glorified and we are more than fulfilled. As we walk on this earth. But then I thought, well, if that's true, why did Paul call himself a wretched man? Remember, that was last week. Kathy explained that so well. Let's look at those verses again. Chapter 7, verse 21. Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of the sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what he's talking about is while we are on this earth, we have this deep conflict that surrounds us. We have this renewed mind in Christ. But we have that sin nature we inherited from Adam, passed down to us, that will stay with us until we go to glory, till we're in heaven. So how can we do life with God? Like Paul said, are we just doing this, struggling through our whole life? Do we have constant defeats in our world? So Paul lets us know in chapter 7 the who to help us in our struggles Jesus, but in chapter 8, he tells us the how to overcome life struggles and how to live out God's purposes for our lives. So look at verse 1, chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have a huge, beautiful piece of artwork that has only that verse on it hanging in my home. Someone in this wonderful church gave it to us and never told us who they were, but maybe you're in this room, so thank you. It's been on our wall for 10 years. How can that be possible? When I think about my sins, when I think about sin as a whole, our judgment, lies, our immoral behavior, How can that be? We have no condemnation. You know, a key word in that verse right there is the word now. Something new has happened to make it possible. God intervened in redemptive history. He made it possible for us to do life with him. Look at Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The verdict of guilty that hung over our heads was changed from guilty to purified, no longer condemned. Jesus even said this before Paul did. Look at John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. So we know Christ is the sphere of all safety for those who identify in him in faith. No sin that we may commit in our past, present, or future can be held against us. Because the penalty of our sin was paid by Christ on a cross. The message isn't, Jesus paid some of it. Jesus paid most of it, but there's a few things you need to get straightened out in your life. Jesus paid all of it. All to him I owe. Sin was like a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You know, I grew up outside of Chicago and winters could be pretty depressing. You would look out the windows and it'd be gray and dark. And even if there was snow on the ground, if it'd been there very long, it was black. (laughs) It was gray from the cars and people trampling on it. So when I was young, I began to pray it would just be a fresh snow. I would pray for God to send another snow because just a light amount of it would cover all that gray and that darkness, make everything look fresh and new. I used to stand at my living room window and look out the window into the park. And after it snowed, even at night, everything would be brighter and cleaner. I loved it. You and I sometimes look out the window of our past and we see some dark and depressing things. And sometimes they come back to haunt us. And here's what happened because of God and because of Christ on the cross. Jesus has forgiven us. Jesus has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. All his forgiveness ends up covering everything, not some of it, not most of it but all the sin that we have had in our lives. When Jesus looks at us, he sees white. He sees his righteousness. He sees us cleansed. We are covered in a white blanket of his grace. That is good news. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death is that principle of sin, meaning it results in death. What has freed it from us, from that kind of a a sin and death? Another law, the law of the spirit of life. This is the law of faith. This is the law of grace. And the spirit of life is God's Holy Spirit who brings that new life into every believer. The spirit does for us. What the law could never do. And Jesus called this being born again, that new life that he brings into us. It's still true for everyone in Christ. We are washed, we are new, we are reborn. Look at Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how do we do life with God in a fallen world with the fallen nature? There's our answer. We do it with the Spirit of God. That's how we do it. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In these verses, when Paul talks about flesh, he's talking about our corrupt, unredeemed nature. It was impossible for God's laws to produce righteousness in man because of man's sin. Yet the Jews continually counted on them just trying to obey the law to be good enough that those kind of works would save them. Look at 2 Corinthians. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit where the spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. So the provision of deliverance from the power of sin is through Christ's death, but experiencing that in our daily conduct, that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We don't have to have a lifestyle of living in the flesh anymore. Praise God for that. We are transferred from a life dominated by the flesh into a new life dominated by the spirit. You know, years ago, many years ago, I met this really neat woman, and she was kind of telling me her story. And she said, you know, I I was having an affair with a married man, and she said, I had not one qualm about it. I didn't even think it was wrong. This had been going on for quite a while, and then she found herself in a church one day, heard the gospel, came to Christ, and then she turned around and said, this is horrible what I'm doing. Oh my gosh, I've got to stop this. She broke it up. She changed who she was, and when I was talking to her, she was on a church staff serving God. Why her life was no longer dominated by the flesh. And the Spirit could point out those areas (laughs) in her life where she was being dominated by the flesh. We live life victoriously, not in our own strength, but walking alongside the Holy Spirit, doing life while he works in our behalf. And aren't you so glad I think of all the times I was about to do something really dumb and the Spirit stopped me or the times the Spirit prompted me to do something right or the many times I've made sinful choices and the Spirit convicts me and I think, isn't conviction great? I actually do Praise God when I'm convicted over a sin because I think that means the Spirit's alive and well working in my life. That also means he can make me aware of the stupid sins I do and I have an opportunity to confess and to change and to walk with the Spirit. So how does walking in the Spirit compare to walking in the flesh? Paul wants us to know that. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Setting the mind on the flesh is death. Setting the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you notice the mind in there so much? You know, a mindset can have eternal consequences. There are people that do this to God their whole life just because of a mindset that they are clinging to and hanging on to. Paul says there's two spiritual states of people in life, either death or life. Those in the flesh find out that they are living a spiritual death, They're keeping their minds set on what they want, what their sinful desires are. Their priority is to do their will with no regard for their creator. Those living in the spirit, they keep their mind set on the things of the spirit. They are putting God's will over their will and they find life in that. There are two fundamental attitudes in these verses. The hostile attitude or the peaceful attitude. Here's why death is the result of living in the flesh, because that person is hostile to God. They may not even know it, but they're in rebellion against their creator. They don't want to submit to him because they are all about themselves. These people can even be good people. These people are the ones that might say, I'm better than my neighbor because listen to what I did the other day. But that's just making them feel good about themselves. That's an inner gratification, not a realization that they need God. And so God cannot be pleased. Those in the spirit do life with God. They find peace in that. And this is an immediate peace and a peace that follows us into eternity. Let's look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Okay, in these verses, the word dwell is referring to being in your own home. The Spirit does not make his life in the home of someone who has rejected Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes and dwells in us for those who have faith in Christ. And because of our faith, we live a blessed life. We walk around our home wearing this white robe of Christ's righteousness. We have real life. We have peace. On the outside of us, Paul mentions we are bound to our earthly bodies. He says the body is dead. There is good news about these earthly bodies of ours. What God has done for our souls, God is going to do for our bodies. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, these are pretty amazing things. So God's spirit living within us now is an assurance that we will have a, a future resurrected life. And here's why. The same spirit who raised Jesus and resurrected Jesus is the same spirit living in us. It's just amazing to think about. And so that same spirit will one day resurrect our bodies as well, give us new bodies. We'll never have to wonder again should I eat that piece of cake? That'll be a great day. Okay, all of these verses are about our privileges in the Spirit, but Paul moves on into our responsibilities in the Spirit in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Okay, I can sum up all those verses with this. Say no to sin and yes to God. That's what Paul means here. You have an obligation to say no to sin and yes to God. It's a choice you have because positionally, we are in the spirit. Practically, we live in a fallen world. Temptations face us every single day. Remember when people would use that phrase, they do something bad and then say, the devil made me do it. Remember that? Well, that is partially true because we have the sin nature. But now, those who believe in Jesus also have a redeemed nature. So the Spirit's in us, so we have the divine strength to say no to things we once found it almost impossible to do. So our obligation is to live according to the Spirit and His holy desires. We owe nothing to the flesh. We owe everything to God. I found this neat poem, a few lines said, Chosen, not for good in me, Wakened up from wrath, I flee, Hidden in the Savior's side, By the Spirit sanctified, So teach me, Lord, on earth to show, By my love, how much I owe. And if you recall, Jesus said, You show your love to Him by your obedience to Him. The sins of our flesh had enslaved us, Paul tells us. We're freed now into a new life. And that spirit is a power that puts to death those old deeds of our bodies. And these are deeds that just served ourselves. Served our selfish appetite. Served our own desires rather than God's. And when he says here, putting to death the deeds... Those words actually are translated, we should be continually killing sin. Continually killing the sin in our lives. One theologian said this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We have to be on top of that. Paul also said in verse 13, those who live according to the flesh will die And he's actually talking to believers here, so we have to stop and think, are you saying we can lose our salvation? Those words, you will die, are literally translated, you are at the point of dying. Paul is talking about the person uh, who is having the experience of choosing to live their lives apart from God choosing sin over God, and he is saying, you will die to fellowship with God. You will die to knowing God. You will die to being able to live out the purposes of God, and you will never know how to really live, if that's the choice you're making. Sin never satisfies. Sin never brings life. You know, my husband once was visiting a friend in the hospital who very firmly believed he was physically dying because of sin in his life. He was the Christian that lived his whole life for the flesh. He never got to really know God. And since he never lived in the spirit, he was always at the point of dying spiritually. And he would say, because he lived that way his entire life, now he was physically dying because of that choice as well. As God's children, we have a choice. We can walk in the power of the Spirit or just give in to our sinful desires. Galatians 5 tells us this. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, Paul's also about to tell us, since we are God's children, we are his children, we are also his heirs. This means something unbelievable. We will share in the glory of God. Unbelievable. Look at verse 17. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. Every adopted child of God will receive by divine grace the full inheritance that Christ receives by his divine right. We get to experience that glory. So all is well with our soul today. All will be well with our soul tomorrow in glory. Paul is saying to us, live for the glory of God. Do life for the glory of God by the Spirit of God. And then you can experience true joy. You can experience real life. You know, living in the Spirit, Paul says, that means we're more than conquerors in this world. Verse 17, just let us know, we will suffer, Jesus suffered. Sometimes our sufferings will be related to our faith. Sometimes our suffering are just trials in this world. But we are not left alone to try to figure that out when we struggle. We know we have the Spirit, but look at what the Spirit's doing for us. Look at verse 26. We're going to skip up to 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we're weary, we find strength in the fact that the Spirit knows our needs. The Spirit is going to God with our needs. He's interceding for us. In this groaning world, we will groan. And then the Spirit will groan for us and go to God for us. And the groaning means he's not speaking words to the Father, but the Father understands what those groans mean uh, because he knows the mind of the Spirit. Sort of really makes us realize the Trinity The Godhead is in total communication with each other to accomplish what? The will of God, the will of the Father. We can be encouraged when we're discouraged. The Spirit is praying for us, and God is listening. I read a fun story about a preacher who was preaching to a congregation, and one member kept interrupting him with loud amens, amens. Amen. He could not get his sermon out because of this. And so he finally stopped his talking and he looked down at the guy in the pew and he says, you know, brother, the Bible says the spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you see what I'm saying here? (laughs) He had to get his message out. Okay. Let's look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Another resource for us, amazing, one of the most treasured promises in the Bible. One preacher called this verse, this is a soft pillow for a tired heart. And it is. Those who love God, have confidence. He will use our suffering to accomplish his good will. Suffering isn't wasted when we have a heavenly father who loves us. Now, the suffering itself isn't really fun. Those are usually hard things. God still harmonizes those things for good things in our lives, part of our sanctification. And I love that... Um, Paul begins by saying, we know, we know this. He expects Christians to know this. You know, you have the spirit, you know how much God loves you. We know he's going to work those hard things in your life for good, for God's good plans for us. And he says, those who love God are called by God according to his purpose. He's called us into salvation. He's called us into a relationship. He sealed us with his spirit. Do we think that kind of God is not going to care about our pain? He's going to care, and he's going to be at work in the very midst of it. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What I love there is God's ultimate purpose in all our lives is to conform us to his Son. It often takes suffering for that to happen. But I love this verse because it's saying all of us as believers, brothers and sisters, We're unified in our salvation. We have faith, but Jesus is the firstborn among us, meaning the first to be raised from the dead, the head of a new race of humanity that is purified from sin to live with the Father eternally. This is the eminent one, the firstborn. And then we read all these incredible questions that Paul asks us, He asked those questions to make us realize how deep God's love is for us and how secure we can be in it, that it's never going to change. And so let me just throw those out. Question, what shall we then say to these promises in the book of Romans? I say, hallelujah. I say, praise God. Question, if God is for us, who can be against us? I say, no one. No one, the devil and his host, might try to take us down, but the creator of the universe is is our God. They aren't going to get very far. He's on our side. Question, since God gave up his only son for us when we were sinners, won't he graciously give us all things? Now that we love him, answer, yes all that we need, and even more than we could imagine. God gave us the greatest sacrifice in his son when we were enemies, so he will not hesitate to give us what we need for our sanctification because now we're his children. Question, who will make an accusation against God's elect? No one. God is the judge. He has declared us righteous. Question, who will condemn us? Answer, no one, because Jesus is our savior, our defender, our warrior, standing at the right hand of God, interceding for us, going before us, helping us. Question, who will separate us from Jesus' love? Can these trials do that? our distress, can battles against us, famine, persecution, dangers, can any of those things limit Jesus' love or dismiss his love for us? Answer, never. Never. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will live victoriously because we are loved by a great God. And always will be. We don't muddle our way through life like people that choose their own path, who follow their own purposes, who struggle. Our path is directed. Our steps are aligned with the will of the Spirit. We only need to seek it. We only need to submit to it. We only need to be prayers. We need to ask for divine direction and divine protection, and it's ours. I found this great psalm. I thought, what a great thing to pray every day. Look on your verse sheet. Psalm 143. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Okay, so what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? I get what a conqueror is. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? A conqueror does something, conquers it, and the end, it's done. A more than a conqueror in Christianity is someone who conquers a hardship with faith, and then God continues to use it, continues to use it for us to grow, continues to use it for God's glory. And we don't have to be afraid because this is the armor that a more than a conqueror wears. We are surrounded by the truth that we are no longer condemned. We are free. We are surrounded in the security that we can never be separated from God's love and power. We are surrounded by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We are surrounded by the sovereignty of God who is involved in every circumstance in our life. We are surrounded by the prayers of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who go to our loving God for us. I read a story about Chrysostom who lived in 400 AD. He was being threatened by the Roman emperor to be banished if he didn't deny Christianity. So he's standing in front of the emperor, and Chrysostom replies, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Well, I will slay thee, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, then I will take away thy treasures. Nay, you cannot, for my treasure's in heaven, and my heart is there. Well, I will drive thee away from man, and thou will have no friend left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven, from whom thou can never separate me. I defy thee, for there's actually nothing thou can do to hurt me. I'm more than a conqueror. That is us. Knowing God is for us, we can face everything in courageous faith because of that divine armor that surrounds us. So we've looked at really incredible promises in these verses to continue walking on this earth, but just wait when we leave this earth, we will be living in glory. Some more incredible promises. Go back and look at verse 18 for me. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's saying our future glory is so great that the hardest thing on earth just can't even compare to it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. For the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are just transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Glory will be revealed to us. Glory will reside in us when our bodies are transformed. Creation will be set free because even the fallen world has been in pain, waiting for its liberation, waiting for its transformation. Creation has been groaning. We have been groaning. The spirit has been groaning. Lots of groaning going on. Why? Because the presence of sin is still here inside of us, outside of us. So fallen creation longs for the moment, the revealing of God's people participating in the glory to come. It's like it's standing on tiptoe. Wanting to see when God's people come into their own, the children of God. You know, right now, we aren't much to look at. We have these bodies that are like broken, weak, sort of clay pots. The other day, my three-year-old little Miles guy was doing a quick stare at my face and my body, and he said, Nana, you and Poppy are a little bit fragile, And then he saw my face drop, and he goes, just a little fragile. (laughs) We are all fragile. But in the future, with our new bodies in the presence of God, we will be spectacular. Sharing in his glory, we anticipate our adoption being completed when we receive these glorified bodies. What began at our salvation culminates at our glorification. Meanwhile, as God's children, we have that hope sustaining us, that we have this glorious future awaiting us. One day, our faith will end in sight. Until that day, we rest in the promises of our faithful God. One day, we will come into the presence of our loving Father and never leave him again. So consider your sufferings. From a heavenly perspective, glory awaits. And while we wait, we will do life with God. Let me pray. Lord, how do we even begin to say thank you? We all in this room today just lift up your name and say we love you. We thank you. We praise you for these promises and the deepness of your love. May we walk in joy and in purpose with you at our side. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.